approaches to the Great Lakes uh, have to address climate resilience. They have to address coastal resilience. We've got to make some big bets and some big investments on uh, building up the quality of our of our of our the resilience of our waters, um, and that's going to mean getting past just cleaning up areas that we contaminated in the 20th century. It's going to mean you know getting past just using voluntary practices to stop nutrients from you know poisoning our water with algae blooms. Uh, we really have to think about um, you know a very integrated, very inclusive approach. To, to, to building, having a vision around, you know, clean water that everybody can rely on if we're going to deal with the impacts of climate change on our region. Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Big anniversaries tend to prompt a lot of reflection. And this year marks the 50th anniversary of two cornerstones of the Great Lakes Protection Movement, the Clean Water Act and the Binational Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. In today's episode, we're chatting with Joel Bremeyer, the Alliance's president and CEO, about the big picture of Great Lakes health, how Great Lakes protection has evolved, and where the movement needs to go from here. Welcome back, Joel. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jen. Glad to be here. So last week, you were in Niagara Falls, Ontario, for a meeting called the Great Lakes Public Forum. And that's a convening that is required underneath the uh, binational Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. And that event, in addition to all of the formalities they have to do at those meetings, um, that marked the 50th anniversary of the agreement. And I know that's prompted a lot of reflection around the region about the past 50 years, the future of Great Lakes restoration. But before we get into the details of what happened at that event, Explain for our listeners what the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement is and why it's important. The agreement was a, initially signed in 1972 between the United States and Canada, and it's a, basically a commitment by the two countries to continually restore the ecology of the Great Lakes, so continually improve that water quality. Uh, it's an agreement, so it doesn't have the force of law, but it has been uh, a really strong incentive for some key Great Lakes restoration and protection actions in the past. Just to give an example, um, one of the most well-known is the Areas of Concern program, which is this program that identified uh, more than 40 hotspots of contamination around the Great Lakes um, that in the U.S. have been steadily being cleaned up under the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. Well, that program goes back to the renegotiation of the Water Quality Agreement back in 1987. So the agreement has set up some of these aspirational goals for the Great Lakes uh, that have over time uh, you know, started to be, to be achieved and actually helped improve the quality of the waters that we all depend on. Now, as part of that agreement, the two countries, so the United States and Canada, are required to release a report every couple of years with a big picture view of the overall health of the Great Lakes. And that report is called the State of the Great Lakes Report. And the 2022 edition was released this summer. What are some top line points about the overall state of the Great Lakes that were identified in that report? I'll preface this by saying, the Great Lakes are enormous, right? They're more than a thousand miles wide. So it's really hard to say altogether, how are the Great Lakes doing, even though I get that question a lot. Um, the report shows, you know, a, a few key things. Uh, you know, for example, uh, some areas are improving. So we're cleaning up more of those toxic sediments, those contaminated sites that I mentioned earlier. Um, drinking water, at least as a source of drinking water, 
uh, the Great Lakes are good, even though we know a lot of communities across the Great Lakes that have a hard time accessing safe and clean drinking water. Um, our beach health is improving uh, because we have a lot fewer sewage overflows in the lakes. But a lot of the report shows that the Great Lakes are either kind of staying the same, which is moderately bad, or in some cases, they're even getting worse. So places like Lake Erie, for example, or the ongoing effects of of invasive species that are already here that continue to damage the ecosystem. So it's definitely a mixed bag, um, but too many categories are showing kind of uh, staying the same or, or even uh, worse than they were three years ago. That's not great news for the Great Lakes. And I know there are a lot of big headlines about um, Lake Erie um, and the fact that it was listed, their overall health, they have these different categories. It was listed as poor and unchanging. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like there's some serious problems there for Lake Erie, but across the region still. Yeah, there, there certainly are. And one of the, the hard things here is that there are a lot of problems locally in the Great Lakes that have an impact on the communities right next to them, right? So it's not just Lake Erie, right? you have toxic algae blooms in Green Bay. Unfortunately, we're starting to see algae blooms in Lake Superior. Uh, we've got places where uh, the contamination of our swimming water is still a big problem. People can't safely recreate. Uh, and certainly uh, damage to fish and wildlife habitat, you know, continues to degrade over, over time. Um, so when you look at the big picture of the Great Lakes, sometimes uh, that masks some of these really acute local problems that are still out there and having a big impact on, on the lives of people, uh, on the economic and health, economic health and well-being of communities. Uh, so it's, it's really important to dig past some of these big picture measures and go get down to that real uh, local problem level when we're considering that question of how are the Great Lakes doing. And so I'm sure this was top of mind for everybody who is at that Great Lakes Public Forum um, in Niagara Falls. Tell us who was there and why they were there. So a lot of the people that come to this event are people that are employed by government agencies. The event is hosted by the United States EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, and its counterpart in Canada, Environment Canada. You have a lot of federal and state government staff you have some advocates, so people like you know me and from other great organizations across the Great Lakes region that are working to advocate for policies and reforms to improve the water, um, but not a lot. Uh, a lot of the folks in the room are people that are there uh, because uh, they are doing you know Great Lakes work in in their in their everyday job, and they're there to report on progress. Um, one of the things I noticed about the event is that the, some of the people uh, like me that were there really are there because we want to have a different conversation than what we're hearing from the stage. There's a lot of uh, report out, uh, a lot of report on successes uh, that we've had under the agreement, which is good, but clearly um, people in the Great Lakes region are, are kind of fed up with some of the pollution problems we're seeing, especially in places like Lake Erie, and especially in the face of a changing climate where the evidence of that we're that our great lakes are being overwhelmed is right in our face right and so a lot of frustration i'm hearing you know from some of the folks in the room as well um not just good news yeah and i think that's interesting to sort of hear about the mood that was there it sounds like the you know agencies are saying yeah we're doing all this great work which there's good stuff happening but a lot of frustration by some of the folks who um are working with communities um or not in that government sphere and so you know when you talked with folks at that meeting you know what was their 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 perspective um on 
you know, successes over the past 50 years, sort of thinking about this history of the water quality agreement? Yeah. So kind of two sides. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm and I think rightly placed for the areas of concern program. In the U.S., that program just got uh, a very large new a federal uh, appropriation of money, a billion dollars that is supposed to get most of those places cleaned up by 2030. Right. That's fantastic. So there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. On the other hand, what I hear, here's you know a story like, well, in the 70s, the water quality agreement was credited with setting the goals that helped Lake Erie get cleaned up the first time, you know, largely from, you know, sewage and phosphorus that was in detergents and other household goods. And the lake uh, came back from the dead, as people say, and got cleaned up. And now here we are again in 2022, uh, you know, standing, uh, you know, facing the stage asking, why is it dirty again? Why is it taking so long to clean up? So it really was a, a mixed a mixed story. Um, and I will also say that the, the there are some real personal stories that I heard at the event. Uh, in, uh, as, uh, there were more Canadians there uh, than Americans, and there were um, uh, quite a few First Nations uh, people from Canada in the room. Uh, Regional Chief of Ontario, Glenn Hare, gave the open, opening remarks uh, on one of the days I was there um, and uh, spoke to the, the just the basic issue of lack of access to safe and clean water and, and, and safe sanitation in First Nations communities uh, throughout Ontario. And just what I heard from that was, you know, until you address these basic clean water needs at the community level, you know, nothing else matters. And, and, there, and we're still not there here in the Great Lakes region. That was definitely a theme that I heard carrying through uh, in, in conversations as well. Yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective and one we've talked a lot overall when we think about the Great Lakes movement, right? That the if the water in the lakes, you know, you're hearing from the State of the Great Lakes report, like the generally the water in the lakes is good as a, a source of drinking water. But if you can't get that to people's homes, what value does it have, right? And I think that's such a powerful story to hear about, you know, communities that don't have clean water coming out of their taps and it's a chronic problem. It sounds like you heard a lot of those stories at this event from a, a range of voices. Yeah, here and elsewhere, honestly, in, in my regular work, people are really starting to, um, you know, understand that it is this, you know, it's this one water that's all connected, flows through the lakes and through our communities. And that there's a, this real disconnect if we're saying, you know, drinking water uh, gets a green in, in a report because the source is there. And yet dozens of communities can't actually access that water safely, whether it's because of toxic algae or whether it's because of lead pipes or some other reasons. Um, uh, and that's just a that's a real disconnect that the Great Lakes region has to has to grapple with and get past. Uh, and on another note, I was encouraged. I was, uh, you know, you know, this week I was at a meeting of the Great Lakes Commission of the states and provinces and a lot of discussion about the need to make sure that, you know, water infrastructure, safe and clean and affordable drinking water is brought in to this idea of a protected and restored Great Lakes. And that's really encouraging to hear those conversations happening too. And when you talk about this disconnect, what are some of the other areas that you're hearing from folks who are at that meeting um, where they feel like the water quality agreement might have been really strong when it was created 50 years ago and then amended in the 80s sometime? Yeah. Um, and what we need today in the Great Lakes restoration movement? Well, you know, it's remarkable. The, the agreement was amended as recently as 2012, so only 10 years ago. But 
already the lakes are showing us that they're changing, right? And so while I'm not advocating for a reopening of the agreement, I do want to recognize big one, you know, climate change and climate and the lack of climate resilience in our region. You know, we're seeing these extreme changes in, in water levels that are happening over just a few years. This has become a much bigger issue, I think, than anybody anticipated in 2012. And it's not just about water levels. It's about, you know, extreme rainfall and, you know, changes in growing conditions for agriculture that are going to totally change how we use and move water around the region. Uh, this is a big deal. And it's not one, it's not an area that the U.S. and Canada, whether separate or together, have really laid out how we are going to deal with it in a way that keeps our water resilient, keeps our communities resilient. So that's a big one. Another one I see is, uh, you know, the the uh, really minimal attention to addressing some of the inequities in, in water outcomes here, you know, at least in the U.S. side I can speak to. Uh, we just got communities and, and, and people that still are not you know, able to rely on the Great Lakes, not enjoying the benefits of clean water, and you know, haven't really been you know, engaged at the decision-making tables for these issues the way that we could have, um, you know, whether it's five years ago or 50 years ago. And I think the, you know, the agreement and some of the work that has been built up around that has some catching up to do. You know, I did hear uh, a couple of you know, voices from you know, federal officials noting that how critical it is to you know invite people to decision making tables and listen and you know provide what what they need based on what they hear and it was good to hear federal officials say that um i think there's a lot of work to do to make sure that actually plays out in practice uh, and, I, and i don't think we're there yet and it sounds like there was an effort and i think that's a really important note to, for us to think about over the 50-year history to bring some of those voices at that at least at that meeting you know in niagara falls you know you mentioned the uh, number of leaders from the canadian first nations were there and um you know were those voices at the table when the agreement was uh uh, pulled together 50 plus years ago? Well, I, I can't speak to 50 years ago. You know, I know that there has been, there's been some incremental progress in, in, you know, engaging indigenous uh, leaders and nations. Remember the, you know, these are often sovereign nations who, who should be at the table in that capacity in some of this work. Um, there's been some great work that I've seen on the Canadian side to, uh, to activate uh, First Nations voices around Great Lakes, uh, around the Great Lakes in a variety of ways, and really remind all of us that, um, you know, First Nations uh, were first and here uh, taking care of the Great Lakes and using the Great Lakes well before, um, you know, my ancestors were, which is just, you know, critically important to note. I, so I saw that and I saw, you know, especially a lot of conversations around the cleanup of these areas of concern. Um, connecting those to, you know, indigenous leaders and First Nations leaders, you know, at the table on panels at the at the event, and that's good. Um, I, you know, candidly, uh, there's still there weren't a lot of of citizen activists in the room, um, you know, from either country, uh, and they really, I would say, you know, not a lot of uh, folks who are dealing with the front lines of water pollution issues in the U.S. at the community level. Just not a lot of not a lot of presence um, in the room. And I think some of that stems back from the, you know, knowing that this, this, you know, this event is a report out, right? It's not a place where big decisions about the next steps to protect the Great Lakes, to protect clean water are happening. And that's really where I think um, we need to make sure that the voices that reflect the whole region are present at those decision-making tables. It's just really critical. 
And, you know, when you're at these meetings and, and you, you know, in your role as the head of the Alliance for the Great Lakes, you know, a regional leader, you know, you have opportunities to meet with some of these key leaders in these various government agencies with the United States and Canada. And what's your advice to them about where Great Lakes protection needs to go in the next 50, 50 years? You know, what are your two to three things that you might be telling them? Like, look, this is where we think you need to be focused. Yeah. Uh, I probably have 10 answers to that, but I'll try to come up with two or three. One is uh, what I just said is, is, is continuing to push to a new model of decision making. People that are affected by pollution have to be part of the solution at the table. And, and, and our government officials have to show us how uh, their advice, our advice is informing those decisions. That's critically important. Uh, number two, I would say that we've got to move, we've got to expand our definition of what it means to restore and protect the Great Lakes. The water quality agreement is largely written around restoring the ecology based on clean water. And it's, but it's a definition to my mind of ecology um, that doesn't include uh, all the ways that people use and rely on the lakes. And so we need to take a more expansive vision of what Great Lakes restoration and protection means and, and build, you know, a, a, a movement, build, uh, think about the water as a, as a whole system that includes people and really uh, reflects all those different ways that people rely on the lakes. Just because as we were talking about earlier, um, if you have a source of water that you can't actually use or access, uh, it certainly doesn't look like a green light. It looks like a red light. And that's a much different message uh, for the community than, you know, clean water kind of in the lake itself. Uh, and so expanding that definition is really important. And I think the third thing I'd say is, is everyone, but um, our approaches to the Great Lakes uh, have to address climate resilience. They have to address coastal resilience. We've got to make some big bets and some big investments on uh, building up the quality of our of our of our the resilience of our waters, um, and that's going to mean getting past just cleaning up areas that we contaminated in the 20th century. It's going to mean you know getting past just using voluntary practices to stop nutrients from you know poisoning our water with algae blooms. Uh, we really have to think about um, you know a very integrated, very inclusive approach. To, to, to building, to having a vision around, you know, clean water that everybody can rely on if we're going to deal with the impacts of climate change on our region. You know, you mentioned earlier, and, and I think this is an important reminder, right, that the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement isn't a regulatory uh, agreement, right? Like it doesn't have teeth to, you know, uh, put penalties on a polluter or require companies to do particular things because each country, right? The U S and Canada have their own mechanisms for doing that. And here in the U S that's the clean water act, um, which is also celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Um, and actually on October 18th. Um, and, you know, I know that the U S uh, environmental protection agency administrator is, um, in Cleveland for a formal celebration of that anniversary, um, before we talk about the anniversary, remind our listeners what the Clean Water Act does. So the, the Clean Water Act sets out some deceptively simple goals um, for our waters across the country, not just in the Great Lakes. Uh, we should all be able to uh, uh, drink from them, swim in them, and fish from them, right? So it's pretty straightforward. Underneath that is a fiendishly complex you know, system of, of rules that were designed to make sure that our water could no longer be polluted uh, you know, without consequence 
And back in the 1972, when the Clean Water Act was passed, it's really hard to imagine just how bad uh, our, and how polluted our waters in the Great Lakes were. Uh, the Clean Water Act was the law that actually set the limits on industrial pollution and sewage pollution and dramatically ratcheted down the amount of chemical and, sewer, and, and sewage pollution that was allowed to go in the Great Lakes it was fundamental in that first cleanup of Lake Erie and has transformed, you know, the Great Lakes uh, into, you know, from, uh, you know, polluted and, and stagnant uh, pools of water in a lot of places uh, to the, you know, oftentimes, you know, very clean water that people can look out over the shores and see today. Uh, with exceptions of places that are really getting hammered by, by algae blooms. So the Clean Water Act has been a really a phenomenal implementing mechanism for agreements like the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement and others, uh, and, has, and has had some, some very positive impacts. Um, all that said, you know, there's a lot of, as we've been talking about, there's a lot of work left to do um, that, you know, the Clean Water Act on its own has not accomplished. And why has the Environmental Protection Agency chosen Cleveland for the location to mark the official anniversary. You know, it's a national law. They could have picked anywhere, right? This has had a big positive impact on waterways across the country. Explain to our listeners why Cleveland. Well, Cleveland uh, is uh, or was, you know, well known as a a uh, city where a, a, the Cuyahoga River actually caught fire. And, and importantly, it wasn't just that it caught fire. The, the, uh, the fire was photographed and featured uh, in a national uh, magazine at the time. And so it got a lot of exposure and it, and it created a huge public outcry for a push toward uh, federal uh, regulation of water pollution because it was just, you know, frankly, it was it was embarrassing and shameful that we had allowed our waters to get to the point where they could literally catch on fire. Um, the thing some people may not know is that wasn't the first time the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. It absolutely wasn't the only river fire that happened in the United States. This happened regularly. This is just how bad things were, uh, had built up, in, you know, through the 60s. But the Cuyahoga River uh, caught the nation's imagination uh, as it caught fire that time. Uh, and, and it prompted that, that political action in Congress to actually get off the dime and pass meaningful regulation that would eventually result in, you know, the cleanup of, of the sources of the pollution that were, that were killing the Cuyahoga. Uh, and today, uh, what's phenomenal is that the Cuyahoga River uh, is very much on the comeback. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that, you know, this is the big reason EPA chose to have a celebration here is because it was a national symbol of decline and now it's a national symbol of restoration. Um, and uh, it's, it's a great place to be like many of the urban rivers across the Great Lakes region. You know, I think the, the Cuyahoga River is such a fascinating example um, because when you put those pictures side by side, right, that national photo of a river on fire and then photos today, you know, they, I love Cleveland because they are uh, very self-effacing and they have a festival called the Burning River Festival every year, yeah. right? And they have a big um, kayak event as part of that where people are out on the water. There's bars and restaurants down in an area that I think they call the Flats. Um, it's really remarkable to see those two images side by side. It's it's a, an impressive example of what cities can do with tools at their backs, like the Clean Water Act. Yeah, you know, I was just, that's right. I've spent a fair amount of time, you know, down on the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, even though I'm from Chicago. 
Uh, I was just in Erie, Pennsylvania this week where, you know, not on a river, but in the bay there at Presque Isle that was, you know, horribly polluted for decades, which has made a stunning recovery again, you know, part, thanks in part to the areas of concern program uh, and, the, and the kind of the, the leverage to stop the pollution and then clean up uh, what was there using Great Lakes Restoration Initiative uh, uh, funds and momentum. Um, it's just that there are a lot of success stories like that across the Great Lakes where eventually people just saw we're, we're not just killing rivers, we're not just killing lakes, we're killing our drinking water. And eventually, you know, we're hurting ourselves, our health and our family's health. And, and, and it just, you know, people got fed up. And, 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 and candidly, uh, I'm hoping people are starting to get fed up with the fact that we're poisoning our water again. And we're seeing challenges like toxic water in Lake Erie that, you know, is not being addressed effectively by the Clean Water Act. And we've got to find other ways to get at that um, because it's past time. And talk a little bit more about that. You know, the Clean Water Act has done so much, but it it can't hasn't solved all of our water problems, obviously, and it, it isn't equipped to solve all of our problems, right? Because it really is meant to deal with what's called point source pollution and not non-point source pollution. Tell us a little bit about those differences and what some of the weaknesses in the Clean Water Act model are that we need to think about some new solutions for. Well, it, number one, it's important to note the Clean Water Act, It deals, like you said, Jen, it deals with these point sources. So I'll just say factories and sewage plants. Those are the big ones. And it doesn't stop all pollution. It requires a limit on how much pollution is allowed to go in the water, right? And so it's important to know those facilities can still put some sewage, some chemicals in the water, but a lot less than what they would have been allowed to in, in the 60s and early 70s, enough to keep those levels low enough that it doesn't hurt people and it doesn't hurt wildlife, as long as the law is followed. So with those places, with the Clean Water Act today, it's about making sure that uh, what we call compliance happens, that the law is followed and those discharges of pollution stay clean enough that they protect us, our health and wildlife health. The problem is the Clean Water Act, even from its founding, was, was not designed to deal with what's called non-point pollution. This is you know, very simply uh, water that flows off from rain carries pollution with it over the ground and eventually finds its way into rivers and lakes. The big source of non-point pollution that's a big problem for the Great Lakes right now is coming from farms. Agriculture, they apply fertilizer, whether it's chemical or manure onto the ground, rainfall comes, washes that fertilizer into the groundwater, into rivers and eventually into lakes. And this is what's responsible for those massive algae blooms we see in Lake Erie. And the same thing on a smaller scale across the Great Lakes region. The Clean Water Act was purposely designed to exclude that kind of pollution from the regulation. It was a deal cut in the 70s that got us there. And now we're facing the consequences because we don't have effective federal laws that are actually making sure that our lakes are as protected from non-point pollution from this runoff as they are from pollution from factories and sewage treatment plants. Uh, and the evidence of that is, is all over the Great Lakes, unfortunately. You know, one of the things that I had forgotten about that I was reminded of when I was reading up on the Clean Water Act for our conversation is that this bill, the, the act, the legislation was actually vetoed by then President Nixon. So back in 1972, and Congress is able to override that veto. And so a 
a refresher for our listeners on how those things work, because it doesn't happen very often anymore, is that if a president vetoes something that has the opportunity to go back to Congress and both the House and Senate have to have a two thirds vote, so sort of a super majority to override that presidential veto, and then the bill can go into law by itself. And that's a whole side story there, but it made me reflect and think on how different Congress was then versus now. And not that everything was perfect in 1972, but with the hyperpolarization we see in our politics and in, on Capitol Hill, the idea of something like that, like both chambers of Congress getting a two thirds majority to do anything <laughs> feels kind of far fetched. What do you think that change in our nation's politics means for Great Lakes protection moving forward? Yeah, no, that, this is a this is a great question. And I'm going to try to provide an optimistic answer and then kind of temper that with some uh, with a with a reality check. So one thing I'll know is that, you know, a lot most people listening to this will probably know that we we passed a law called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Sometimes it's called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law in 2021. And that was done with the support of I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was about a dozen um Republican senators, along with you know the fifty Democratic senators in the Senate, uh, not exactly two thirds, not exactly you know a consensus, but at least it shows that when it comes to core issues like in that case, a big part of that bill was clean water infrastructure and drinking water infrastructure. People do get the need for this, regardless of political party. That consensus is still out there to be had on some issues, so that's a good thing. However. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, the Clean Water Act itself and the idea of regulating pollution has become heavily politicized. Uh, and in fact, you know, whether you want to call it political or not, there's a major Supreme Court case um, that's being played out right now that's reevaluating the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act and which waters should be covered. And unfortunately, you know, some of that conversation does split on party lines. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lesson in the the program the great lakes restoration initiative here right so the glri is not a regulatory program it's a funding program it's paid for a lot of those cleanups over the last 10 years it's been phenomenally successful very bipartisan um and part of that is because it recognizes the needs across the great lakes basin and helps to make sure those needs are addressed uh, regardless of, of, you know, in all these locations, some of which are represented by, you know, Republicans, some of which are represented by, by Democrats, but there is a consensus to be had there around clean water. Um, what I think we've got to do though, is, is recognize that funding and voluntary work is not going to get us, you know, to solve these problems. And so we've got to take that consensus that's been built around restoring the Great Lakes, convert it into a consensus, a new consensus around, making sure that everybody has safe and clean water, which is gonna require regulation and funding and voluntary action. Um, there might be more room to do that at the state level, frankly, than there is at the federal level. Um, there's just, you know, as we all know, Congress is extraordinarily polarized and it's hard to see a path to, you know, effectively dealing with some of these, these uh, you know, clean water challenges like, you know, agriculture at the congressional level. But, you know, at the state level, uh, believe me, Wisconsin is watching this issue. Ohio is watching this issue. And, you know, in that case, you've got, you know, currently one state with a Democratic governor, one with a Republican governor, both taking uh, the issue of agriculture pollution very seriously. So I think, you know, if we can, you know, build that consensus, at least at the state level, and really, you know, make this about clean water and make this about protecting 
people's health, protecting communities' vitality and economic well-being, which is what it is. Um, there's a shot to get the protections we need in place um, at the state level, even if that's going to be a very, very uphill battle at the federal side. Well, thanks so much, Joel, for this conversation today. Um, I will let our listeners know that you have a blog post up about a lot of these issues. Our listeners can find that. Uh, we'll link it on our Lakes Chat webpage, which is greatlakes.org slash lakeschat. And we'll also put up some links about the State of the Great Lakes report and a couple other uh, videos and information from the Great Lakes public forum that you have shared with us. So thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, you'll find links to more information about the topics that we talked about today. And you can also sign up for updates to stay in the know about Great Lakes issues and opportunities to get involved. Special thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode drops. Talk to you next week.